Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. My name's Eric. If you haven't got to meet me, we'd love to get to know you after uh, the service and answer any questions you might have. Uh, today, after this service, we'll have an um, opportunity to become a member. It's called a membership class. Again, that's just formalizing a relationship with the church family. I'm wanting to go where the church leadership is directing and being a part of serving and doing what we're doing and praying for and supporting. And so that'll be, uh, again, after this service, uh, we'll have lunch provided. If not, there's December 4th, an opportunity um, for that. Um, if you're looking around, hopefully you're catching the hint. Next week is Market of Hope. And so that is just an opportunity for our church um, to help uh, give and aid and assist churches around the world to share the gospel, uh, to go to the ends of the earth, to, to make Christ known, to strengthen uh, other Christians in hard context that God loves them and he's with them. And so you can just, uh, we have catalogs, we mailed out catalogs, and just be thinking and praying through maybe what the Lord would do and, and have you do. Uh, I encourage you to do it with your kids, whether it's small or big, and, and help them see um, that God's bigger than just in Bakersfield and in California. He's global and he's doing things all over. Um, last thing I'll say is if you can't afford to give, that's fine. Still look through the catalog. Pray that God would meet the needs in a certain one. Um, find uh, a country or a missionary, then just pray for them and, and be involved some way possible and uh, just to walk through that and do it together. So we're excited about that next week. Um, so be praying and thinking and ready to come next week. So we're in Matthew chapter 5. Hopefully you've been following with us. Um, if not, I encourage you to go back and listen to the sermons um, because each chapter is building. And uh, we're at the beginning of a huge crescendo, at the apex of what's going on. Uh, what Matthew has done is he's built the resume of Jesus very methodically to get to this point. Essentially, in chapter one, we walked through, he has the resume, right? He has the right family history. King David, that's in his lineage. Abraham, right? The lamb that would come and take away the sins of the world. God would provide the offering through Abraham. So he has Abraham's lineage. He has those credentials. He's worshiped by the wise men. He's in every geographical location the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah, the King, the Savior would be in. He was uh, publicly affirmed by God in his baptism. He was anointed and he was called and it says, this is my son who I'm well pleased. And so at every single mark, Jesus is meeting it. He was tested in the wilderness as Moses was tested, um, but Jesus was perfect, passed the test. And then Lastly, what we went through is he's, he's demonstrating that he has power and authority. Power, he's, he's doing miracles and he's healing people. And authority, he's casting out demons. And essentially what's happening is he validates this is the king. So listen to what he's about to say. Because he's about to say some hard things. And this king's going to tell you now, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. To be a citizen of heaven. This is what it, what it looks like to breathe and sink and feel as a Christian, a child of God, a citizen of heaven while you're on earth, while you're here. And so he sets that up. So think of it like there are distinctives that are absolutely true of a Christian. Just like, you know, there's distinctives as an American sometimes. You know, when we go into another country, um, we kind of have a little bit people can tell we're American. Usually it's because we're loud or we're very direct, 
or we like huge quantities of food as our portions, right? We use a different metric system, miles, right? We like ice in our drinks, right? Like lots of ice. And so there's distinctives. And the same way what you're going to see is, man, there are some distinctives as a Christian. This is how you're known. This is who you are. So we're going to look at the Christian, the citizen of heaven, depends on God, lives for God, and is persecuted because of God. And just look at what that means for us as a Christian. Let's pray and we'll jump in. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. You're just glorious. Uh, it's just the songs we sing, you, you hold us fast. Your mercy is more. And we thank you for that comfort. We thank you for that forgiveness. We pray your word would teach us. It would unite us. It would hold us. It would draw us close. It would inspire us to love you more, to want to give up more of ourselves, uh, to sin less and be like Jesus. So we pray that your words would speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, first thing we need to see. He gets starts off right off the bat. Says, hey, you need to be poor in spirit. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Okay, this, this gets confused in Christianity. So I'm going to be very deliberate here. And I, and I want you to see, is there a word after poor in? Yes. Okay, so that means that poor is describing an object. And that object is the thing to be described, right? So what is he describing? Spirit. Poor in spirit. It's not financially poor. Are we made, that's from the text, isn't it? Poor in spirit. Spirit is the thing that is to be poor. It's not talking about material poverty. This is so important. It's not saying, hey, blessed are you who don't have a home and live on the streets. Blessed are you who have no money. Um, for a lot of reasons, this makes no sense. But just think, one, can, poor, can rich people be blessed? Absolutely. We see the tax collector. Luke's a physician. These, these, you see material wealth. Yes. And if we look at rich, rich is a very relative word. Everyone thinks they're poor compared to somebody else, right? They do. You talk to a rich guy, he's like, yeah, but look at Bill Gates. And Bill Gates is like, yeah, but look at Elon Musk. Yeah, look at the other guy. Everybody, this is saying, no, no, this is objectively you're spiritually poor. You're like, oh, but pastor, you're ignoring Luke chapter 6. I'm glad you guys said that. Because it just said, blessed are the poor. It doesn't have an object it's describing. Why? Because it's a state of being. If there's no object to describe, then the word is the means or the object in of itself. Meaning, blessed are the poor. A state of poor, meaning dependence. See, spiritually poor, if you're materially poor, you're totally, you bring nothing to the table. You have nothing. He's saying spiritually, you need to realize you bring nothing to God. Absolutely nothing. You were dead in sin. What do dead people bring to the table? Nothing. What is he preaching then, then this up against? He's preaching this against the Pharisees who think, I'm rich spiritually. I'm in the synagogue. I give the sacrifice. I give the money. I don't work on the Sabbath. I don't cheat on my wife. I, I bring something to the table. And when you're rich in spirit, what do you do? It's like, God, I've done this. Now, what are you going to do for me? I've brought this to the table. I deserve, I'm entitled to. And there's this kind of a sense of give and take. It's very works-based. God, I've come this far to get to salvation. You maybe bring me this far. You, you should be thankful that I came this far. I'm, I'm responsible for getting this far. 
See, poor in spirit says, I can bring nothing to the table spiritually. Nothing. And it says you're blessed in that. Now, here's another thing we have to see about the blessing. The blessing is the state of acting or or, or the state that you're in is the blessing. It's not saying there will be a material blessing for doing this. It's saying to be dependent, spiritually poor, is a blessing in and of itself. There's nothing extra. Now, I want you to think about this. You're like, I don't know if that makes sense. Of course it does. Of course it does. It's saying we are so blessed that we don't bear the weight of saving ourselves. That we get to come to God and say, you wholly do it. You fully do what I can. He said, I'm blessed that I bring nothing. Because whatever I could bring wouldn't be enough. That's a blessing, isn't it? It's saying you're a blessed person when you realize, you're cognizant that you can do nothing without Christ. That he's the full work, the full weight. So he's saying, citizens of heaven. Now you go back through one through four. Kingdom language. Kingdom is here. Kingdom is here. Welcome to the kingdom. The king is here. And the first thing you need to know is to be utterly dependent on me for all things. And it is to your blessing because he's a good king. A quote kind of helped back this up. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. says, I would say that there is no more perfect statement on the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification is he is making right the scales. He's paying the balance for your sin, right? There's nothing um, more perfect than the doctrine of justification by faith only than this beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs and theirs only is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, do you realize it's not just that we bring nothing to the table. We can't save ourselves. We're dead. But we also bring a withdrawal because we sin. That's why he moves on to the next point. So, so not only do we bring nothing, we actually take away a deficit. We create a deficit through our sin. We're sinning against. We're going into the negative. We're going down and down and down. He's saying there's no greater statement then Jesus pays the scales. Jesus pays it for you. You are blessed. Therefore, because all we do is bring it into the deficit, into the negative, he says, mourn your sin. Blessed are those who mourn your sin. It's saying, because you realize Christ did all of this work. He pays my price on the cross. He takes the wrath of God. He pays my penalty. And then I sin. He's saying that you would mourn that sin. Man, I'm in the negative. I'm I'm taking against the one I love, the one who paid for me, my king, my savior. Saying that is an utter blessing. Think of this. It's a blessing to mourn your sin. Why is he saying that? This sounds very depressing. No, 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 no. Think of the person who has an addiction and has no sense that it's bad for them. Would you say that's a good thing? The beginning of it being a good thing is when they realize the damage the sin brings and there's this part of them that says, I want no part of that sin because it's damaging. It says, blessed are you when you actually mourn that sin because you know that sin hurts you, but also greater than that, it's against God. It's against Christ. It's against the spirit that dwells in you. It's against that. So he's saying you need to mourn that sin because you're in a relationship with him. 
Now, again, what's the blessing? If you're a Pharisee, let's say you get in a heated conversation with a coworker and you're slandering them, you're saying evil, and so you've, you've now just taken your salvation to here and you're offset. You're like, oh man, I better work. What do I gotta do? I gotta work. I gotta work hard. I gotta pull myself up. I better go to church 20 times. I better write a really big check for Market of Hope, right? Which you can still do, right? I gotta get that thing up. I gotta get there. You say, no, 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 no. That's not mourning your sin. That's, that's you taking care of it yourself. Mourning your sin is I care about Christ. Christ said, no, my sin's already paid for. I would never want to sin against him. Never want to do that. And that mourning only comes when we realize we're totally dependent on him. And so this mourning is saying that sin now breaks our heart. This, this is a movement in our society because what do we like to do with sin? We either like to ignore it, it doesn't exist. We like to minimize it, it's not that bad. Or we like to completely just make it go away by, by changing the very words of God. Well, God doesn't care about my speech. God doesn't care about my anger. God doesn't really care who I marry. God doesn't care what substances I put in my body. It's fine. I'm not murdering people. I'm not in prison. I'm not bad. He doesn't care. They say, no, 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 you need to mourn your sin. Why? Because you'll be comforted. You'll be comforted. God will forgive that. You don't need to minimize it. You don't need to change it. When you actually do that, it minimizes what Jesus did on the cross. This is the problem with the Pharisees. He's sitting there. You think about this. They see the woman caught in adultery. And their first sense is to do what? Stone her. And what does Jesus say? He who is without sin, throw the first stone. All of them step back. No one could throw the stone. Why? Because they've all sinned. But what was their thought? My sin's not as bad as hers. She should mourn. She's doing the bad things. I'm doing the semi-bad things. See, they're not caring about the relationship with the king. They're caring about making it right themselves. And they're like, I can do this all day. I'll just write the check, come to church, help the old lady, say nice things, not cheat on my wife. I can do it. Say, no, 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 you're missing it. You mourn because you love the Father. You mourn because Christ died. You mourn because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And in that mourning, you will be comforted and you are blessed because you see that sin is bad and Christ is good. Therefore, you are blessed. The blessing is in the act of mourning because it shows you care about the one you're offending. Are we seeing how this builds together? This is so important that you see this. Typically, sometimes people will preach this one beatitude at a time. My heart that you would see the full picture, full weight of how this all works together. That this is really the beginning of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Okay. Next one now. Blessed are the meek. Now, this is so important because we're, we're working our way through this. And the temptation is like, but pastor, Christians really come from a position of like weakness. Like this is just like, oh, God's everything and I'm nothing. It's like, absolutely. And that's actually a position of strength, not weakness. Because if you realize you're fully dependent on God and you realize that your sin is terrible and you need to not do it and he comforts you and he loves you, then your strength is fully in Christ. He did the good work, spiritual poverty, right? He did the work, Philippians 1, 
He will bring it to completion. He who began, he completes. You have a confidence, not in of yourself, because you're spiritually poor, because you're mourning your sin. Confidence that Christ, the King, will take care of you. He will love you. He will sustain you. He will keep you. Meekness is a confidence in the Lord. Meekness is, I can wait on the Lord. Weakness, or meekness is, I, I, the Lord is with me. No matter how bad my circumstance, no matter how bad life gets, I trust the Lord. He says, that is strength. Think, think through this just even deeper. Think 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not put itself first, right? It puts others first. You can only do that when you are meek. When you're trusting that God will take care of you, therefore now you have the ability to love other people, serve other people. You have the ability to focus on them because God is fully taking care of you and you're fully depending on him for your value, for your identity, for your purpose, for your mission, for your love, for your forgiveness. Fully dependent creates a strength that you say God will do this. He is with me and you won't deter See, this is contrary to what you're seeing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Look at me. Look at what I can do. Look at what I can do. And then when Jesus comes in and goes, no, I'm the son of God. You depend on me. It takes away their power. It takes away their authority. They get insecure, and then they try to kill him. Because he's taking away the very thing that makes them strong. Their power, their strengths. He's saying, no, no, you need to be fully dependent, fully cognizant of the king. Here's a good quote for you on meekness. It says, biblical meekness is rooted in the deep confidence, catch a deep confidence, that God is for you, not against you. Trust that God is able and willing to sustain them and guide them and protect them. They wait patiently in stillness for the work of God in their lives. Then it commits its way to the Lord in the confidence that he will use his power, his mercy, to do good for us, then it waits patiently and quietly for the outcome. And finally, it does not give away to anger and fretfulness when faced with opposition and setbacks. Saying no matter what the circumstances, the meek person is confident in the Lord. Look at Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says that though I am weak, I am strong because the power of Christ remains in me. So he's saying citizen of heaven, you find your strength in the Lord. You find your substance. You find your purpose. You're fully dependent on him. That's how you live. Then, now, the next part, how do you live? In light of that dependence, how do you live? Because again, you're not earning your way into the kingdom. Christ paid for us to be in the kingdom. So you're in the kingdom. Now, how do you act? Dependent? And next one, how does it progress? Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst. Have you ever been hungry? Or maybe, maybe you haven't. For those of you that have, okay, being hungry can drive you to do crazy things because you literally get so hungry, you get hangry, right? Hateful and angry, hungry, hangry, right? You'll do anything to satisfy that because you're hungry. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you'll get weird food and weird things kind of put in front of you and you'll resist it and you'll resist it and then you'll get so hungry, like I don't even care. Just give me food. 
Give me food. And it satisfies you. Like, that's what I've been longing for. He's saying, you need to hunger for righteousness, right relationship with God in that way. I'll do whatever it takes to be in right relationship with God because I have a deep desire that can only be filled with Christ. I have a thirst that can only be quenched with Christ. This is Jesus in John 4 when he goes to the woman on the well. She's trying to satisfy her soul, living in inappropriate sexual relationships, going from man to man. And he's saying, your soul is thirsty. And it's going to stay thirsty because these men won't satisfy you. You need living water. You need Jesus. You need to be loved completely, forgiven completely. You need to know your identity is he is your king. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a child of God. That's who you are. That's your purpose. That's what you need. That will keep you. That will sustain you to be in right relationship with God. Like, I don't know, pastor, you're still making this up. No, chapter four, John, read it. Hey, hey Jesus, are you hungry? What does he say? No, my food is to do the will of the Father. So it's saying in the same way, when you are so hungry, you'll do anything. There's, there's something inside of you that needs love, that's perfect. It needs purpose. It needs identity. It needs value. It needs strength. You need these things. The only thing that will satisfy is God himself. And you'll do anything to be in that right relationship. This is why when we watch you know, sports movies and we see documentaries and you see someone that wakes up early and they train their body and they train their diet and they go and they go and they run through walls and then they achieve and you're like, yes, right? And you just want to pound the pulpit and like, let's go, right? You see this, you see the work, you see it. And there's tears and there's joy because all they want, they're striving after it and they accomplish it. You're saying hunger in that way. Hunger after being right with him. Hunger after his will. Hunger and thirst, whatever it takes, I'll do what he wants. Another quote, John Piper says, your soul is hungry and your heart is thirsty. Again, we're already in this position. You feel an insatiable longing for something. You're restless. Almost everywhere you turn, the grass is greener than where you stand. And that great tragedy for some of you is that even though this is the spirit of God beckoning you to himself. What he's saying? We stand on a fence and we look and go, oh, I need that. That grass is greener. That'll make me happy. That'll satisfy me. He's saying that's a natural desire. But instead of taking that desire and going to the Lord, he says we turn away again and again to the short run, temporary, backfiring pleasures of R-rated video and cassettes. You could tell this is an old quote, right? Or movies and drugs or alcohol or tanning parlors or a new toy. It says, we try to satisfy it with scenic vacations, accomplishments of creativity, stunning cinematic productions, sexual exploits, national sports extravaganzas, hallucinogenic drugs, and ascetic rigors, managerial excellence, etc., etc. We fill our soul with things that will not feed us and keep us. It's like when you're hungry and you run to the sugar, and you run to the treats, it doesn't satisfy. It leaves you more hungry. It leaves you wanting more. It never satisfies. He's saying, blessed are you when you go to God to be satisfied because he's the only one who can. When you hunger for that right relationship, 
for they shall be satisfied. This is what Jesus is saying over and over and over again. You can keep trying to work and work and work. You can use envy to try to make you feel good, jealousy, power, money, sexual promiscuity, whatever. It will not fill you up. Only in the citizen of heaven will you be filled and you'll be filled with Christ. So this is now he's moving. This is how we act. We hunger and thirst for right relationship. Again, not to earn it. It's because of what he's done for us. He's made us at peace with God. He's made us citizens. Next one now. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. See, here's the thing. People who have received mercy give mercy. What's the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Let's go back to the woman of adultery. Their thought is, she needs to be stoned. She needs to be punished. She has a great sin. What's their thought? My sin is small. I could have given a better offering. You know, maybe I was swearing. Maybe, you know, maybe I was really mean to somebody. Maybe I blew up at somebody. She's committing adultery. She needs to be punished. Why are they lacking mercy? Mercy withholds a punishment deserved because they don't think, they haven't received a great mercy because they didn't do a great sin. Well, Jesus forgiving me is easy. Jesus loving me is easy. I only do small things that are bad. But her, her, she needs to be stoned. And what is he? He raises the bar. Well, have any of you sinned? Well, yeah. Well, then go ahead, throw the stone. Like, oh, none of us can. The guy, you're missing the point. If you're in the kingdom, you've received mercy. Doesn't matter what your past is. Everyone who's in the kingdom received mercy. Everyone sins against the holy, perfect God. And that sin, the just act for that sin is hell. And the fact that you get to go to heaven eternally is mercy. I said, blessed are you when you show mercy. Why? Because it reflects that God's been merciful to us. So again, this has huge consequences and huge thoughts for us because we live in a scorecard world. We live in a, you've done five bad things to me. I've only done one bad thing to you. I get to do four more bad things. You've earned the wrath that I'm going to give you. You deserve that wrath. And long as I make it even, we're good. Not a citizen of heaven. It trusts that God, Jesus, the King, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He'll make it right. You're trusting his. On the other side, it's like, well, why would I be nice to them? They've only done two nice things to me. I've done three. So until they do three, I'm not going to do four. It's works-based, tit-for-tat, scorecard. It's like, no, no. You're acting as if God was not merciful to you. That God didn't save you, love you, purchase you by his blood, take God's wrath in your place as if you did the work and then Jesus did a little bit. No, poor in spirit, he did all the work, fully dependent. He says, my kingdom, you're a citizen, you're merciful, you show mercy. Why? Because much mercy has been shown to you. Quote, mercy comes from a heart that has first felt its spiritual bankruptcy, right? Poor in spirit. And has come to grieve over its sin. Mourning your sin. Second one, right? And has come 
uh, to grieve over sin has learned to wait meekly for the timing of the Lord and cry out in hunger for the work of his mercy to satisfy us with the righteousness we need. Saying when we're fully dependent on God, mercy becomes the next thing you're fully dependent on. God will deal with them. And I pray that God would deal with them in a way that they love him in the way that he was merciful towards me and now I love him. Mercy, I trust his judgments. And again, this is contrasting the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You deserve, you deserve not realizing, no, God showed you mercy. You act as a person that Christ did not die for. That's the prop, okay, keep working. This is probably gonna be the most important one for you to remember moving forward because it's going to drive everything else in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. You see, essentially what's happening is the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Jews, they do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And what Jesus is gonna say, it doesn't matter if you do the right thing, if you do it for the wrong thing, reason, it's wrong in and of itself. He's gonna come out and say, he's gonna say, look, you, you've heard it said that murder is a sin, but I tell you, hate in your heart is the sin of murder. You've committed murder. He's gonna say, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, he who lusts in his heart has committed adultery. He's driving at the heart, has to be there. Essentially what he's saying is, look, Jesus, the king, he didn't come to change bad habits. He came to change and clean dirty hearts. This is Ezekiel 33, right? Ezekiel, he walks through it. Hey, I'm gonna give them a new heart. I'm gonna gonna give them a new spirit. I'm gonna put it inside them. They're gonna be a new person. They're gonna be a citizen of heaven where they have my spirit, my heart, and they have a pure in heart. So you can do the right thing without the right heart. I want you to think about this. Think about this. Really, really think about this. This is why it's so important. You you see, Jesus didn't come that we could have a utopia, that we could have this perfect world where everyone plays nice. Think of this. You could have a world with no murder and no adultery, and it still wouldn't meet the requirements of what God requires. It would still fall short. Why? Because you'd still commit murder and adultery in your heart through the lust and hatred of others doesn't fit the bill. A kingdom of heaven has a heart, a heart, a heart for the Lord. He is the reason why I do it. My entrance into the kingdom is why I do it, because he loves me. It's a lot harder when you have the right heart, then it makes it easier to do the right thing, the right action out of the right heart. We don't always do the right thing, even though maybe we have the right heart, but then you would argue, did you really have the right heart if you didn't do the right thing? Right? You can play with that if you want. Look at it. Think of it. It's very similar. Husbands, you, you get this. The wife asks you to take out the trash and you get mad, you get angry, you take it, and then she's mad at you. You're like, I took out the trash. Why do you care? Because it wasn't about taking out the trash. It was the attitude and the heart behind it. Because she wants you to say, I care about you. I don't want you to do it. I'll do it. I never want you to touch something so dirty and gross. I'll do it. It's the intention behind the action. And you like living in the house, don't you, right? So you do these things. I was saying if you're a part of the kingdom, you act in heart in accordance with the kingdom because you're very aware of what he's done for you. You're pure in heart. Well, how do you stay pure in heart? You mourn your sin. 
You have a poor spirit. You have a meek attitude. You show mercy. All of a sudden now, you have a pure heart that says, my heart is to do what God wants. My heart is to do what he asks me. Then he goes into, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, I want you to think about this. Really, really think about this. The peacemakers. What is he getting at? Blessed are those who help make peace between God and man. Because that's where poor, being poor in spirit starts. I can do nothing. He has done everything. If you help two people who don't know Jesus not be mad at each other, that's a good thing. But is that a blessed thing? Because those two people still don't know Christ. They still don't know Jesus. They're still not in the kingdom. They're still not a citizen of heaven. Now, okay, now let's progress that thought a little bit more. Let's push down on it a little bit more. The reason that we fight with each other is because we are fighting with God himself. See, when you're not at peace with God, that hunger and that thirst, we try to satisfy it through the means and use of other people. This is why James says, you backbite, you envy, you have jealousy, you kill, and you devour one another. Why? Because you're trying to fill a hole that only God can fill, and you use each other to try to fill that hole, and it never, ever works. You cannot be at peace with people unless you are first at peace with God. Because if you are not at peace with God, your maker, your king, people will just be something you use to satisfy your insecurities. They'll just be something you use to not feel lonely. They'll just be something you use to measure yourself and falsely give yourself credit, motivation, and power, right? It's a false measurement. So it only works if first we're at peace with God. Then all of a sudden we're poor in spirit. Then all of a sudden we're mourning our sin. Then all of a sudden we're pure in heart. And then all of a sudden we're merciful. Man, you need to know Jesus. You need to be right before him. This, this is going to keep going on and on and on until you've reconciled before a holy God. This is why Romans 5 says, while we were enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. Enemies. Christ makes peace for us. And then we get to be in the kingdom and be at peace with the king. He says, blessed are you who do this because you're helping people reconcile being an enemy with God. Okay, so he walks through that. Now you have... In the kingdom, you're dependent, you live, and now it's going to be the consequences of being dependent and living in the kingdom. The consequences are, blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, let me be clear on this one. There is this kind of movement in Christianity that if people are being mean to you, the catchphrase is, they hated Jesus too. Just because someone hates you does not mean you're being like Christ. They didn't hate Jesus for being a jerk. Okay? It's, and, and they didn't hate Jesus for being political. You, you can't say, oh, well, yeah, they hated Jesus because he was mean and he was angry. No, they hated Jesus because he said he was the son of God. He told them to change their behavior, repent and Follow him as the king. We cannot blame our behavior 
that people don't like us and say, oh, I'm being like Jesus. No, you're not. And think of it this way. Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm a Democrat. Oh, I'm a Republican. I'm a monarchist. No, he actually said, I'm a theocracy. God's in charge. Follow. And that's why they hated him. So we're not blessed when we're hated. You're blessed when you're hated for, verse 10, righteousness sake. When our desire is to be in right relationship with Jesus, and you're persecuted for that desire, it says you are blessed. So when you stand up and you say, man, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what my king has said, and that's what I believe, and that's what I hold. And they yell at you and say, you're a bigot, you're mean, you're racist, whatever that word is, you take that, it says you're blessed. Because that's what they did to Jesus. Jesus held up the word of the God, and he said, I am the son of God, I am the king, I take away the sins of the world. And they hated him for that. And he says, you are in the same vain place as Jesus and the prophets before you. You're blessed. But it's when you're pursuing righteousness sake. When you say, no, abortion, that's, that's murder. I, I would never, I won't because God, he's the king. I follow him. I hold him up. Oh, you're a terrible, mean, rotten person. He says, you're blessed in that. Now, here's the thing. I want you to see how this progresses. Verse 11 adds something into this. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. See, here's here's what happens. They started off arguing facts. Well, Jesus didn't really heal that. He's not really the son. Well, yes, he did. He is the son of God. Look, he cast out demons. Look, he healed people. Look, he, did, look he, he's, he was in the Old Testament. He's prophesied. John the Baptist told about him. All these facts are coming. So when people can't beat you with facts, what do they beat you with? Slander. Slander and gossip. What will we see them do later on? They'll call Jesus Satan. And Jesus is like, Satan? You think Satan cast out Satan? That's what I'm doing? That's not very logical. Of course it's not logical because they're trying to win the emotional argument. Because when someone hears, oh, he's Satan, they go, oh, you're following Satan? Oh, I would never follow Satan. They say, oh, look, it's him from Galilee. What good comes out of Galilee? You're really following the loser who was born out of a scandalous marriage from a city that no one cares about that uneducated people come from? Oh, no, I don't follow a loser. See what he's saying? People will scare you emotionally to stop you spiritually. They will scare you emotionally to stop you spiritually. They will stop trying to argue what God's word said and goes, that's really mean. Are you a mean person? I'm not a mean person. Oh, well, then God doesn't care. I guess I won't say anything. We get scared what they might say about us because if they think we're judgmental, racist, bigots, not woke, whatever your phrase is, I might not get invited to the party. I might not get invited to the work event. My kid might be withheld from that birthday thing. My son, my daughter, whatever it is, I might, so I I change God. I shrink back because the reviling and the persecution and they speak all kinds of evil, it scares us. They're saying, no, 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 Christian, when you stand for righteousness sake, right relationship with God, you're actually blessed 
because they're not angry at you. You're angry at the sin in their own heart and they want that sin to be right. So they speak bad things about you so that people won't like you. So it'll scare you into changing your behavior so that you won't act like Jesus. So you won't act like a citizen of heaven. So you'll do nothing or act like a citizen of this world. You'll act in the same way. And he says, man, blessed are you when you pursue right relationship with Jesus and it costs you. He says, the prophets, verse 12, it happened to them. He says, therefore rejoice, be glad. Your reward is great in heaven, great in heaven. What is he saying? This is temporary. You will be hated, you'll be reviled. They will say false things. Do not be swayed, Christian, because heaven is for eternity. And eternity is amazing because it's with God and it's without sin, it's without shame, it's without tears, it's without pain, it's without disease. All of those things are gone. It is bliss, it is beautiful. Therefore, citizen of heaven, remain, remain, remain. Essentially, if you're gonna boil a sermon of the Mount down, I want you to think of it like this, is that I bring nothing to the table, nothing. Christ brings everything. He does all the work. He pays for the sin. He conquers sin. He conquers death. He gives us the spirit. He gives us the church. He gives us the Bible. He brings everything. So if we are nothing, he brings everything. Therefore, he can ask anything. He can ask anything. This is blessed are we when we walk in righteousness, when we are seeking right relationship, he can ask anything that the Lord would give and the Lord would take. And we blessed would be your name, that we would depend on him for everything, that we would mourn over our sin, that we would show mercy because we've been shown mercy, that we would have a heart to please him and him only. Our heart would be to love him and be like him. And that's our driving force. The fact that we're in the kingdom drives what we do as a part of the kingdom. You're not trying to earn your way in. It's a response that he paid for you to be in the kingdom and be in that kingdom eternally, forever and ever. Some questions for us to walk through. What does it look like for you to be totally dependent on God spiritually? To really say, God, I'm not good at anything. I need your help to be merciful, to forgive, to love, to be kind, to be a dad, to be a mom, to be a daughter, to be a son, to be an employer, to be an employee, to be, a, to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth. I need you, dependent. I need to go to you, what's right? And what needs to change in your day-to-day mindset? Two, where are your actions divorced from your motives? That's huge. Where are the areas in your life where you're doing the right thing, but it's not for the right reason? It's so that people will praise you It's so that you can feel good about doing that other bad thing. So you do this one good thing to kind of make you not feel so bad about that thing. Where are the actions divorced from the motives? And how can you begin to reconcile them? Say, God, I do this for the wrong reason. Help me write that big check for Market of Hope because I love you, right? I'm responding to you. Or that small check or that prayer, whatever it is, it's a heart that loves the Lord and it's in a response to loving him. It's a response to loving him because the motive, the motive is anything for Jesus. He paid for me. It's the motive. How can you work on changing that? Three, which attitude is the hardest for you 
And how can you work on it? How can you, are you thinking through, this is what it means to be a citizen. This is what it means to be a part of it. What do I need to change? What do I need to work on so that I look, think, act, and feel like a citizen of this kingdom? Four, when you're anxious, fearful, or stressed, what comforts you and how can meekness help you in those situations? How can meekness help you in those situations? Meaning your comfort, your strength, your confidence comes in God because you're fully dependent. You trust his timing. You trust his will. Sometimes he gives, sometimes he takes. You trust him. Where are the areas you need meekness, strength, under control, through the power of God and the work of Christ? Five, how are the attitudes themselves a blessing? Realizing that the blessing is being dependent on God. The blessing is that you care and mourn about sin. The blessing is being merciful. The blessing is being pure in heart. The blessing is hungering and thirsting for right relationship with God. The blessing is being hated and still loving him because then your love for him is not attached to circumstances. It's not conditional love. It's unconditional love. You see, I don't care what they do to me. I love you. And that's a blessing that you could love him in that way and that your love would be unhindered by the wealth of the world and the pain of the world and the enticements of the world. How is that a blessing? And how can you celebrate and see and hold all that you have in Christ? Because you have nothing. He does everything so he can ask anything. And that's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And that's what we desire. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for who you are and what you have done through the work of Christ. Um, it is our deep prayer that we would rejoice and be glad for all that you have done. We would celebrate who you are and what you've done, that we would act, think, and feel as citizens of heaven to be in your kingdom, our great privilege. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we go into a time of communion, what a great passage to set the tone of how we're to think and act about Christ and remember what he did. Um, last time we had communion, uh, I referenced this because it's true. I want you to think about this. Communion's not a time where you store up all your sin and then you wait for communion to happen and then you start to confess and repent of that sin. And we're supposed to be doing that daily, hunger and thirst daily, right? Do it daily. You're consistently looking at your sin, repenting and turning from it. So that when you come into Sunday, when you come into Sunday, it's an acknowledgement of the sin. It's an acknowledgement of what Christ did, a remembering of the pouring out of blood and the breaking of body. But more than that, it's a celebration of that act. See, we can, we can repent privately and we can pray privately and we can thank him privately. But what we're called to do corporately is celebrate the work of Jesus as citizens of heaven. It's the one time a week we get a picture of what heaven will be like when we're celebrating and singing and loving Christ, that he is there and what he has done. So as you go into a time of communion and you remember the work on the cross that Christ did, his body broken, his blood poured out, it's good to work through Sermon on the Mount. Mourn your sin. Christ, I sinned against you. I love you. Help me not do that. Help me be pure in heart to not want to do it because I love you, not for a scorecard. God, help me 
show mercy. There's people I want to even the score or people I don't want to be nice to. Help me be merciful, to be pure in heart, to love because you love, to forgive because you forgave, to serve because you served. You have that progression. You mourn the sin. You ask God to help you not sin again. Then you celebrate him, A, that he forgave you, and B, that he is with you, and C, that you are part of his kingdom. The celebration comes at the end. And so as you think through and read, you know, Matthew 26, it says, now they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after this blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink it, all of you, for this blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Confess the sin. Remember you're forgiven. And celebrate the forgiveness. Celebrate the work of Christ. Uh, our communion cups, it's important. You open the bottom first, then the top so you don't spill the juice. You're gonna take it together, either with your family or yourself or your kids, your spouse, and work through that. If you're not a believer, just pray and think through, man, where, where am I going when I die? Do I believe that Jesus is the payment for my sin? Do I believe Jesus is the way to God, that Jesus is the way to heaven? Think through that and pray through that. Uh, But after I pray, you're just gonna go in your own time, confess before the Lord, thank the Lord. And then John will come up and we'll celebrate corporately as a family the work of Christ. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he paid for our sin. We thank you that he did what we could not, bearing the wrath of God in our place. May we be grateful and thankful and rejoice for that work that we can confess our sin and you are faithful and just to forgive. May we celebrate that as individuals and as a family. May we sing loud, full hearts, full voice for the work you have done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.